Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, well, welcome this morning. Glad to have you here with us. If you're listening online later or viewing on uh, Facebook Live, glad to have you with us. We're in the series that we're calling Jesus, and this series uh, we're doing is meant to introduce us to Jesus, kind of using his own words, allowing him to introduce himself to us. And as I get into this this morning, I think I wanted to let you uh, into my world a little bit more. If some of you are going to be coming to our house for um, this Christmas event that we talked about, you may want to know what our front door looks like. And so I have a special relationship with our front door. Here it is right here. Here's our, our front door. It's missing the welcome mat because um, our dog eats anything that doesn't bite back right now. And so we've moved that. But here's our front door. And I actually do have a special relationship with our front door uh, because about a decade ago when we were, had the opportunity to build our house, I had the, the task of painting the front door. Doesn't that look nice? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Appreciate that. Uh, very meaningful. Very meaningful applause. <laughs> There's three coats of green paint on this door, by the way. Thank you. Yep, appreciate that. So we did a little bit with the house and building it, and we worked with our builder. We could do the painting, and that's about the extent of what I could do to help build the house, okay? Um, we had someone do the electrical work that we happen to know pretty well, right? Um, but this is my, my job, all right? I'm going to do the door, and we did the inside of the house, but as I'm doing that door, I'm like, you know, there's a lot that's going to be going on with this door. And it's an interesting thing if you ever thought about your front door, any kind of door at all, but and doors are interesting in that this, you know, if you've um, been away at school, or you've been away um, on the job, or you got married and moved out of the house, and you're coming back for Thanksgiving, or Christmas, if you have any kind of fond memories of your home, when you open the door and walk back in, memories come flooding back, don't they? Reminders of what used to be. Smells sometimes come back. Laughter comes back when you open that door. Now, if you've also grown up in a home where you've had um, parents anything like mine or anything like we did with our young kids, when kids go running out of the house to go outside to play, what do they always forget to do? Close, close the door. Would you close it? Are you trying to cool down the whole neighborhood with air conditioning? Like, close the door, right? Like, close the door. Doors also close to provide protection. So doors open to bring life, and they close to provide protection, just like they will today. I don't want all of the cold air of today coming into my house. And so doors are interesting things. They always open to provide life and close to provide protection over and over and over again. That, just, that story gets recycled over and over again. They, they open, and you can come into our house and experience life. But if you grow up in our house, we hope to open the door and let you out so that you can also live, Right? That life also happens out there, but in here, but the door also closes for protection. And the way doors work in real life are also the way doors work metaphorically. Some of you have started a new job, and you realize, here's an open door for me. And we use that language, like, what is the next open door for me? You hope that the door opens up, and inside of that, you hope that there's life. You hope the door opens for life. You hope it opens for an opportunity. You hope that you can maybe grow personally, you can develop, you can make a living, you can rise up in that company, whatever. You hope that there's opportunity. But you also hope that the door, if you will, closes to protect you in that you don't want to be hurt in this company. You don't want to have inequity show up in this space. You don't want to be harassed in this company, right? You, you want there to be both opportunity and protection. Same thing for a relationship. If you're in a relationship with someone and you've kind of opened the door into a relationship, you hope for life and joy and freedom in that relationship, but you also know you hope that the door is closed to abuse. You hope the door is closed to hurt and pain. That's just the way it works. For some of us, and particularly when you think about faith matters, some of you have come and you're close to a door of faith, 
In fact, maybe, maybe like if you were at our house and if you were actually at our front porch and under a little overhang there, the door might be open. If this is a faith door, you might be someone who's actually been standing on the front porch and you've been seeing people go in and come out of the door of faith. You've realized that there's something maybe there inside that they get life from and go out to have life and there's protection in there. But you've maybe been hurt by church. Maybe you've been hurt by people who have been spiritual leaders in your past that you haven't quite experienced this idea that somehow opening, walking through a door of faith, walking through a door where God might open a door to invite a relationship with you, if you don't feel that the door will close to protect you, you will not walk through the door. None of us will in any environment, whether it's at work, in a personal relationship, or in matters of faith. And this is why it's so interesting. When Jesus comes to the world and he introduces himself to us, One of the ways that he introduces himself to us is he says, I am the door. He says, I am the door. Now, he uses a different word depending upon the translation. We're going to see it in a minute. He uses, I am the gate. But gate is also translated door depending on how you look at it. So he's essentially saying, I I am the door. It's a weird way to introduce yourself. (laughs) I mean, you ever meet anybody like, hey, I'm Tim and I'm the door? I mean, that's a strange, right? That's a strange nickname, right? I mean, this doesn't, doesn't roll off the tongue. But Jesus introduces himself this way. And as we think about what doors do, they both open for life and close for protection. This is how Jesus begins to introduce himself to the world. And if you have experienced a Jesus or if you have experienced faith that has not opened for life and at the same time closed for protection, you have experienced something but you may not have experienced what Jesus meant to offer to you. And so I want to invite you to this morning, is I want to invite you to see who Jesus is again in his own words in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in there in chapter 10. So John is a little book in the New Testament, two-thirds of the way through your Bible, fourth book in what we call the New Testament. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew near you. It's our gift to you. We'd love to have you take one with you. But John chapter 10 is where we're going to land this morning. Um, And Jesus begins talking at the very beginning here in verse 1 of John chapter 10. And he's he's speaking to the Pharisees. He's coming right off of the account of healing the blind man um, of last week. If you were with us, if you weren't, that's fine. He healed the blind man last week and kind of, you know, had a a conversation with the Pharisees or the religious leaders. So he says in in the first couple verses of, of John chapter 10, I'm reading from the New International Version. He says it this way. He says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber, which is also true in my house, right? (laughs) Except for the sheep pen part. (laughs) The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep, and the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And then Jesus pauses. He takes a breath. And the Pharisees look at him totally confused. (laughs) Look what happens next in verse 6. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees were not paying attention in class, did not understand what he was telling them. They had no idea what he's saying. What Jesus is saying, it's really simple, right? Look at verse 1 again. He says, I tell you, if you have people who are in your house, but they didn't use the front door and you didn't let them in, what do you think they are? I mean, they're, 
they're not supposed to be there. Or they're throwing a surprise birthday party, but it's probably that they're not supposed to be there. He said, so sometimes there's people, he's saying there's people in this pen who aren't supposed to be here. And those people are what we call thieves and robbers. Like, they're not supposed to be in this space. And then as a sheep pen in the, in the ancient Near East is built, usually by um, rocks, stones you know, built up over time, uh, that there's a gatekeeper so that the sheep can come in and they can have protection in that space. And then the shepherd comes in and, and the sheep respond to them by name. Like he, he calls them by name, which is great. People like to name animals and all those sheep, you know, that's how they respond by name. And they understand his voice and, and that, that all works. And they're not going to be led by a stranger. They run away from them. And the Pharisees just stare at him like, what are you saying? Like, that's great. What do you mean? They don't understand the deeper meaning behind this. So then Jesus says this in verse 7. Jesus said again, just kind of driving this home. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate, or depending on your translation, I am the door. I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me, this is a strong statement, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. All those, he's saying, who have come before me, and by the way, Pharisees, I'm talking to you, he's saying, all those who have come before me are thieves and robbers. That's you. And the sheep haven't listened to them. That's amazing. Now, he goes on, verse 9, repeats it. I am, he says, the gate. And then he clarifies what that means. I'm the gate. So whoever enters through me will be saved. And then he doesn't explain that. He just makes a statement and moves on. They will come in and go out. He's kind of describing this door opening. They're going to come in, they're going to go out, and they're going to find pasture. It's a beautiful image. That the sheep will be hungry. If they only stay in the protection of the sheep pen, they're going to get hungry. So you've got to open the gate and get, let them get out and have life and pasture. And then when it gets dark, time to bring them back in so that they're protected. This constant influx and flow of life and protection. Life and protection. Just like your front door does, just like we want every opportunity in our life to be, just like faith should be. Life and protection. This is what Jesus is saying. I am the door. So they come in, they go out, they find pasture. And then he says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's clarifying why the thief is here. Let me pause on this just for a minute. Some of you some of you have actually experienced this. Some of you experienced in faith a faith that has actually stolen from you, a faith that has taken from you something that it shouldn't have. I was speaking this week to a friend of mine, um, a leader in our community. He was telling me about his childhood and the struggle that he now has because he has adult children. And he hasn't raised his children the way that his parents raised him. He grew up in a church that, in a, in a place where his parents said, you're always going to be in church all the time, and wherever the doors were open, we're there. In fact, it was more than that. It was a, more, a heavier legalistic piece put on top of him. He rejected that and pushed away from that. Didn't totally push away from God entirely, but pushed away to the point now where he's wondering, have I pushed too far away? Have I not raised my adult children the way that I should have raised them? But then in his mind goes this scenario, well, what was my other option? to raise them like I was raised, to grow up having my joy stolen from me, to grow up thinking that God will only be pleased if I do enough, and having this thief come in and steal from me life rather than give to me life. 
And as I'm sitting across the table talking to this man who's a community leader, like, this is what thieves do. They come in and they sit there and they don't really open and close the gate for your protection. They open and close the gate for their protection and for their good. And some of your experience has been like that. And maybe, who knows, maybe even right now it is. But there's something in you that has been stolen, the life, the joy, the hope, the love that God has designed for us to experience with one another and with him. And there are people in the pen sometimes who sometimes are spiritual leaders and authority who take from you the things that they shouldn't take from you. I've seen it, you've seen it. And Jesus says, all those who have come before are robbers and thieves. But I have come. But I have come, he goes on. He finishes verse 10. I have come that they may have life, he says, and have it to the full, or depending upon your translation, have it in an abundant way, have an abundant life. This causes some problems, if we're honest. This causes some problems. Um, If you are uh, anything like me, there are seasons that you go through that sometimes are high and sometimes are low. And if anyone has ever walked through um, valleys of struggle or depression or discouragement, right? like I can walk there with you. I get what that feels like. And there are times in those moments when you're in that valley, it's like, I don't know about John 10.10. Like, Jesus has come that you may have life and have it to the abundant. Is that abundant life when you're struggling with discouragement? Right? Is that what he means here? Am I allowed to experience the pain of loss and grief and are you? Does he mean by abundant life that I'm always going to be on the high? Is that what he means by abundant life? And if it is, then if I'm not there, maybe I'm not doing the things that I should be doing as a good Christian person. Or does he mean that I should always make ends meet? That financially, at the end of the month, I should have enough to pay rent, and I should have enough to to buy the groceries and have enough for my kids? Is that what it means is abundant life? Because there's plenty of teachers in our world today who will take this abundant life and say, this is what abundant life means, that you will have abundance You will have everything to the full. And what exactly does Jesus mean when he says that you may have abundant life? It's a a thing that we've got to stop and think about. And I would love for you to, to be able to see with me a picture of what I think abundant life is meant to be. And this to me, um, boy, if we could really grasp the, the implications of what abundant life could be, to me it would be revolutionary. In fact, sometimes for me, I have to get out of my current history and go back in time to think about what did, what, what did people do in other periods of time to evidence and bear out what abundant life would look like. Because when Jesus comes and he compares himself to the thieves and the robbers in the pen and says, I'm the gate, like if you come in and go out, you'll have both protection um, you know, in life. You know, what does that look like? What does that actually mean? And there's a stark story that's um, a true story. Um, of a, a man named John Wesley who was born in 1703 in Britain. And what his life evidences is a missions principle that I'm going to call this, and you may or may not have heard this before, but it's a principle called this, redemption and lift. Redemption and lift. Here's, what, here's how this works actually um, in the real world. Have you ever been, if you ever watched a sporting event and there's a team that's losing toward the end of the quarter, the end of the game, sometimes they'll look for a solution off the bench. Like, I need a spark plug. I need to bring somebody in. I need someone to lift the spirit of the team. I need someone to come in and, and hustle. I need someone, and maybe you have someone like that in your company. The business meeting is going downhill, and someone comes in with a positive thing, with an encouragement, and it lifts the room. And the moment, if you will, is redeemed. This idea behind abundant life, seeing it as redemption and lift, is this. 
that if abundant life is this, that when people come to faith in Jesus, there's a redemption, there's a buying back to God, and then their lives are lifted, almost like a rising tide, their lives are lifted to a different space, not where they're always financially secure, not when they never go through the valley of discouragement or depression, not when they don't experience pain, but there is a kind of a corporate lift. And John Wesley's story is a perfect example of this. 1703, get this, four million of five million people living in Britain at the time in the 1700s were in abject poverty. If they didn't find food to eat that day, they began the the process of starving to death. That is hard to imagine. 80% of the people, four out of five people, were in abject poverty. And John Wesley is born into that space. And in that space, he becomes what is later known as a Methodist, and he begins what we now know as the Methodist movement. So if you know of Methodist churches, this is John Wesley stuff. And John Wesley begins to have this stirring of God in his heart, and he's like, there needs to be more for this community, because what he's seeing is actually evidenced by an old painting by William Hogarth, in the early 1700s, and it's called Gin Lane. And here's a picture of this, this famous painting. And, and gin and, and alcohol, particularly gin, half of the grain was turned into gin at this time. There's actually in Britain, get this, there was 169 crimes that were capital offenses. You could, you could be killed for 169 various crimes. There were people who were intoxicated over and over again. This picture shows from Hogarth's perspective, what was happening in society at the time. Kids falling off balconies, parents not caring. There's a picture of a man up there hanging himself, committing suicide. Businesses falling apart. People literally naked and, uh, and dying in the streets. The society is falling apart. Police are completely overwhelmed. It is chaos. It is absolute chaos. And it's into this environment that John Wesley is born and begins to grow up and sees this isn't the abundant life. Like whatever the abundant life is, this isn't it. And he comes to the conclusion that three things need to happen. One, we need to do no harm to people. Two, we need to do all the good we can. And three, we need to use every grace that we have. And John Wesley begins preaching and teaching, and the Methodist movement begins to gain traction. And here's what happens. People begin, slowly but surely, people begin to engage in the hope of God. People begin to engage in the gospel. People begin to see Jesus differently. And as people come to faith in Christ, as they come to faith... Wesley and the Methodist movement pulls them out of the street life, pulls them out of the gin lane, if you will, and says, listen, there's more to that. And they come to these revival meetings, and Christians begin giving up intoxication, less fighting, less uh, sexual immorality. Parents actually begin seeing children as people to be raised and nurtured. (laughs) A million people over the course of Wesley's life, a million people, come to faith in Christ and begin to change. And the changes are not just that they get out of this um, intoxication, although that is a part of it. They get out of intoxication, they get out of the um, terrible habits that create this kind of space. Wesley also begins to tell them, you know what, there's more. Here's what's more what I want for you. I want you to consider, what does it look like for you to take care of your neighbor? Do you, do you now see that the person that you were just drinking with is actually laying naked on the street? What if you clothe him with a, a blanket? Or what about the food that was given to you? What if you worked for the food? What if you figured out a way to start your own business? What if we built deeply into the lives of people the values of honesty and um, industriousness so that people, Christians, actually began creating their own companies? People began working in creative new ways. He began to give a new framework for how to see money, how to see finances. He began to preach messages like, 
make all that you can. Not a bad message to preach, right? Make all the money that you can. But then save all the money that you can. And then give all that you can as a main idea. His point was, use all the grace that God has given you. Some of you, he's given an incredible grace to think in a business way to create great wealth for yourself and people around you. Do it, he's saying. Do it. Allow the abundant life that you can create to grow within you and your business and your company to change an entire society and then save all that you can. Don't, and he, he would say, you know, don't, don't spend so much on needless excess. He made this incredible point. He said, it's better to throw your money into the sea than to spend money on needless things. You get to define what needless things are. But his point was, as we continue to grow in our faith and see what Jesus has done, the redemption lifts all of us to do no ill in our companies and to do good for our neighbor in creative and profound ways. And finally, in the Methodist movement, John Wesley, he said, you know what, we need to teach people how to read. There was this great literacy movement that happened. They would come to these revival meetings and people would sing hymns and read the Bible and the the Bible and hymns became the way that, that people began to learn how to read. And if you're literate, you now have a means toward upward mobility. What happened in 1962, there was a historian who wrote about this movement and she said this, she said, The revival in Britain in the 1700s is what moved Britain to the middle class. These million people who began to be changed through the revival of coming to faith in Jesus and through the being lifted up to see what more could be in how we run businesses, how we handle money, how we read, how we engage our children. All of the lift that comes from being redeemed people raised an entire nation up. To the point where the nation avoided, what this historian said, avoided the bloody um, fights of France at the same time. Instead of that, this group found Christ and was lifted up. William Wilberforce was a product of this time. And if you know William Wilberforce, he grew up. He grew up, and he's a great example. He grew up in a space that was impacted by Wesley. And in Britain at the time, he led this movement to abolish slavery. And you have a million kids growing up. You have a million people coming to faith in Christ. And what happens is these kids, the next generation grows up learning how to read, learning how to work, understanding what giving is all about, and seeing the grace of the gospel using all means possible to share with one another. And not just that people are changed, but an entire nation is actually changed. To the point where the next political leaders, the next people who advocate for policy change, the next people who advocate for how your country and nation should work are impacted by Jesus and the redemption of the gospel because the entire nation is lifted. And so if you want to know, when I go back to what does it mean that Christ has come, that you might have abundant life, that you might have an openness to life and a closing for protection, it's more than just, it's more than just that you and I would feel a confidence in him, although I hope you feel that. But it extends to this picture of what Christian should be, what you and I get to be, what you get to be in your business, what you get to be with your friends, what you get to be as you dream about a future career that you could think, you know, wow, I wonder how I could use, how I could use what God has gifted me for to make this kind of lift impact around me. Speaking of that, locally, we had the opportunity this past Thursday evening to visit the Pequot Valley School Board meeting. And several of us from GPC were there to celebrate this little moment that I don't want to go by too quickly. 
And I took just a candid picture of it. It's not a great picture, but it's a picture. And it's a picture of this. It's a picture of our own Katie Byler getting recognized by the school board for the work she did as literacy liaison for the last two and a half years. There were, um, two and a half years ago, there was about 46 kids on what we call a preschool waiting list. Um, these were kids who were under-resourced, not just all the children, but under-resourced children who were not able to have access to a uh, preschool that could get them ready for kindergarten. We know the data tells us if you can't read and if you're not ready to get into kindergarten, your future trajectory goes this way while everyone else goes this direction. Pre-K readiness, very important. In two and a half years, we now have reduced that number from 46 down to zero. Isn't that cool? And it's, it's the work, not at all of me, but it's the work of Katie and the work of our community, the work of the church saying, we want to get behind this and we're willing to support this. Our connections with the United Way, by the way, countywide, that number is now 400 kids are entering kindergarten ready to learn in the last two and a half years, last three years, excuse me, in our partnerships with partners all across the county. Can you imagine the kind of lift that begins to happen as some of these things are engaged? The reason we do it is because of redemption and lift. The... The chairman of the board of Pequa Valley said this to Katie. He said, we want to thank you so much for your work. This is God's work that you've done. Yeah, it is. This is life abundant. This is life abundant. Not that you'll never go through discouragement, not that you'll never go through the valleys, not that you're, never gonna, not that you're always going to have all the money that you need. This is the reality that Jesus has come to say, I'm going to open the door for life to you. And when I open that door, I want you to invite other people into the way that you think about how you conceive of your business, the way you conceive of how you think about your future career. Don't just do it for you. Don't just do it for you. Don't just think about a future where it's about my best expression of me. It's about how in the world can I extend this kind of life abundant to the people all around me? And some of you are thinking, well, that's awesome, but I'm not you know, an organizational leader. I'm not in the community at that level. I don't care. <laughs> I care. I don't care. Here's what I mean. I had two different conversations this week with, with friends, both of whom I would call leaders, but I would also call them lonely, who are unable or don't have the capacity to speak to other people, just feel like, assume that no one else would know their story and understand where they are. And when you do this, when you as a person, as an individual, as a man, as a woman, as a young man, young woman, when you sit with people and you engage them, engage them, and where they really are and engage them, even in matters of faith, engage them in, in offering hope, engage them in showing love, and engage them with the open door, opening that door to life, saying, how can I support you? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? How can I work with you? How can I help you? These questions invite an engagement into that open, that gate opens, and we invite to life. And in your own personal relationships, the chance to connect with your friends, your family, to open that gate again. For some people, and you know them, some people have been near the door of faith again, but they're standing on the porch they're watching people go in and go out and go in and go out, and they're talking to people of faith. And it almost feels like they're a part of it, but they know they're not, and the reason is they don't trust that the door will close to protect because there's been too much hurt, too much disillusionment, too much pain in the past, and I get it. And I get it. And so this is why I come back. If you have experienced something 
but you haven't experienced a faith that both gives you life and protects you. You have experienced something, but you haven't experienced what Jesus intends for you to experience. As the gate, as the door, his intent is that you will come to the open arms that he has, and in that space you will find protection and life. And as you go out to pasture, if you will, as you go out to work, as you go out to engage your friends, as you go out to your future career, as you go out to a new relationship, that you can bring a lift with you, a redemption and lift, that people can see what is different about you and lift all of the people around you, even little by little by little. That is life abundant. And so when Jesus comes, he comes not just as the savior of the world, but he also comes as the gate, as the door, as the one who invites you to open that door again. And so what I'd love for you to do, what I hope you do, is if you don't know Jesus like that, I would invite you to knock on that door again, to look at it again, maybe take a step in to that space and give it another chance. And that's a conversation I would love to have with you. you know, Kevin in the back would love to have with you. But that's what we believe Jesus does. He opens for life and closes for protection. That we may have life, you may have life, and have it abundantly. In our next installment of Jesus, we're going to see Jesus not just as the gate, but also as a good shepherd. Look forward to having you back for that. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to be here this morning and to stop again and consider the kind of impact that you can have on this world, that you can have on our lives, that you can have in our friendships, in our careers, in our vocational plans, in our relationships, in our upcoming retirement plans, that you can be the door that opens for life continuing to inspire and encourage and drive us toward that which is life-giving for those around us and that which is life-giving that you give to us and that also closes for protection, that you will protect us from the lies of the evil one, protect us from the harm that can come at times just from living in this world, protect us from all the self-harm that we sometimes instill upon ourselves, even by thinking we're doing good things for ourselves and indulge in things that we really shouldn't and end up harming ourselves and harming others in the process. So Father, I pray that you would continue to help us step into that door to see that as an open door to experience life and the protection, safety and comfort and love of what you really offer to us. So we thank you for all that you've done for us and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.